pride is forever. I loved uh, the Olympics. I found them exhilarating. It was wonderful to see what uh, the human body could do. It was deeply moving, watching athlete after athlete uh, weeping on the podium. You had a sense that all, all the pent-up emotion of, the, of years of hard work and of discipline was, was flowing out of them as they stood there. The pain of early morning runs, the privations of a careful diet, the sacrifices actually that others had made for them, all of it was worth it. And I couldn't help remembering as I watched some of those ceremonies that the Apostle Paul used athletic, even Olympic metaphors to describe the Christian life. He called us to be in training, to run the race, to strive for the prize. Actually, this week I found myself thinking that if the Paralympics had been around in Paul's day, he may well even have preferred that image. Because uh, the Bible doesn't exalt um, the most gifted people necessarily. It exalts the most dedicated And the Bible recognises that actually we are all damaged in one way or another, uh, all impaired. Some of us have some strengths and other weaknesses and uh, others uh, the other way around. And the applause in heaven is not actually reserved for the simple achievements of people on the basis of their natural gifts. Now the real applause is reserved for those who dedicated themselves to serving Christ with whatever they had. Actually, disconcertingly, it seems that in heaven there is no part of a place in heaven but on the podium. There are lots of podiums as there are in the Olympics for those who ran their race as they were able. But but those who won't run the race identify themselves as people without faith without desire for that ultimate prize and therefore without the hope of that ultimate prize. There is no choice, says the Bible, if you're a believer, if you want to go to heaven, you get into training and you run the race God has marked out for you. Faith, as the sermon title says, is about going for gold. And that's what we're, we're going to be thinking about this morning as we see what the writers of the Hebrews says at this time about Moses. We have been looking at Hebrews 11, asking ourselves a question uh, every week, the question that, that uh, the writer seems to want to answer, what is faith? And we saw, first of all, um, a couple of weeks ago, that at its most basic level, faith is a faculty that we all have to exercise all of the time. We all have to trust things that we cannot see. We all have to trust things, especially in the future. And Christian faith is no more than that in one sense. We we cannot see what goes on beyond the visible world. We cannot see for ourselves yet what will happen in the future. We simply have to trust to trust God's word, what God says about these things. 
But it is, we said, a reasonable trust. It's not a blind, irrational leap in the dark. It is based on evidence. There are some things that we can see, particularly the way that God has worked throughout history, the way God made predictions and then fulfilled them, sometimes long after the death of the person to whom he made the predictions. So, there is a reliable pattern here. God's word is reliable and Christians can therefore exercise a reasonable trust in what God says. If you, if you missed that a couple of weeks ago, then, then um, listen to the sermon on the website if you want uh, to think about that more. Uh, a little bit more. Last week we focused on Abraham and the issue that is picked out in Abraham's uh, life is who can we trust? And as we saw, Abraham's whole life was actually about him learning to distrust the false promises of this world. He walked away from the great city of Ur and to trust the promises of God. He camped in the unpromising promised land. And we saw Abraham was right. Ur is no longer and yet that pilgrimage that Abraham began became ultimately the seedbed of a faith that now runs throughout the world. Abraham's trust was vindicated. So now to this next great hero of the faith, Moses. Moses, remember, who led God's people out of slavery in Egypt. As the writer to the Hebrews um, uh, describes it here, (coughs) he wants to emphasise another aspect of Christian faith. It's not just about who we trust, it's about what we long for. And in order to unpack what he says about Moses, well, I was going to say we were going to ask three questions. Well, fortunately for you, perhaps, the third question is... um, we're not going to get to. But the three questions were, what was in Moses' heart? What qualities of character did Moses need? And the third question you will have to work on on your own or um, uh, uh, think about it in your home groups, what did Moses' faith achieve? So two questions then. We will look at for a little while that this passage answers. First of all, what was in Moses' heart. Hebrews 11.26 I think is the heart of what he wants to say about Moses. Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. What, what the writer is alluding to is, is um, actually, initially, what was a little bit of a false start in Moses' career, but it, it, it showed the beginnings of a real faith that in his life flourished. Moses was born into slavery in Egypt as a, as a Hebrew, one of the people of God, but uh, because um, at that time Pharaoh had decreed 
that uh, all the Hebrew boys should be killed, um, Moses' mother decided to trick Pharaoh's daughter into adopting him as her own son. And so Moses grew up in the protection of Pharaoh's palace. He had it made, frankly. As an adopted uh, grandson of Pharaoh, he had a a greater fortune than money supermarket man. He had more status than Prince Harry without the embarrassing possibility of photos. And he, he was more attractive to girls than a teenager wearing links. He really, really did have it made. And he gave it all up. He felt called to lead his people. Initially, he fancied himself as a sort of Che Guevara, murdering an Egyptian, and that all went rather badly wrong. But finally, God did make him into a godly leader of his people who was prepared to stand up against Pharaoh and to lead the people of God out of captivity all because of what was in his heart. He longed for something, a reward, says the writer, more than the treasures of Egypt. Now, I say what was in his heart, and I want to clarify just a little bit um, so that we understand what we're talking about here. As modern people, we tend to think of our hearts just as as the source of our emotions, so, you know, a middle-aged man may have an affair with his secrecy because his desire is uncontrollable and he says, well, I, I just couldn't control my heart. My heart led me to do that. He means his, his emotions, his sort of primal desires. And in the, in, in the Bible, the, the heart is slightly different from that. It's not just the seat of our emotions. Sometimes people are described in the Bible as thinking in their hearts. The English, uh, the British Western idea of, the, of sort of the head being the place where you think and the heart being the, the place where your sort of unruly emotions are found is not quite what the Bible says. No, the Bible describes our heart as, as the core of everything that we are. It is where everything else about, every, everything that there is about us comes together. It is the summation of our core emotions that actually anatomically the Bible says are in your guts Um, but it's the summation of our emotions and of our understanding and of our will in other words it's where everything that is deepest about us converges including our emotions but not not exhaustively our emotions and that's the sense in which I want to talk about Moses' heart Deep at the core of who he was, then, something very important was going on as he prepared to stand up to Pharaoh. And that was in part something uh, um, rational that he thought through. Verse 26 we're told he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt. That is, he, he formed a careful judgment, uh, in particular a judgment about the value of something, about what he esteemed. He settled in himself 
a judgment of what he longed for. His, to use modern language, his, his, his mind, his heart, his very core were all united in this uh, judgment. Two judgments actually we, uh, we learn if we think about it. Um, one is simply about value. He regarded his reward as of greater treasure than, the, than e- Egypt. In fact, he valued even disgrace, we're told, because it led to reward. Perhaps we are to uh, uh, contemplate the fabulous wealth of Egypt and think for a moment at the fa- about the fabulous wealth of our culture as well, even in this economic climate. And to think, well, I, I could devote myself heart and soul to accumulating as much wealth as I can. But then to think, no, I'd be investing in chaff. I'd be building myself a golden cage. I'd be, I'd be a fool. But actually I think the main way that our author wants to interact with that is not just about wealth. It's about status. Notice Moses chose disgrace. He's suggesting that actually every Christian has to accept that they forfeit status in this world. Some of you know I used to be a vet and uh, I would go to social gatherings and uh, people would ask me what I did and I would say that I was a vet and immediately people's eyes would light up and uh, they'd be filled with interesting questions and so on. And um, that was quite fun. And then I became a pastor. Uh, Not even a proper vicar, Mark, a pastor. And you mention that in those um, circles and you see people sort of rewind their conversation frantically in their minds at the last minute to check that they didn't blaspheme or say anything inappropriate. Um, it happens all the time, you know. And then, and then they sort of ask a few polite questions, particularly they're bemused about a weird church that meets in school and so on, but... Underneath it, you know, is a big question. Why? Malcolm Muggeridge, um, who was a television celebrity of yesteryear, he came to faith relatively late in life and uh, he wrote about it in a book uh, called A Chronicle of Wasted Time. He wrote this. I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for the higher slopes of the inland revenue. That's success. Furnished with fame and a little money, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake in trendy diversions. That's pleasure. Might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heeded for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfilment. And yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply those tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, a positive impediment 
measured against one draught of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. The respect of this world is worth nothing. We lose nothing by giving it up. But every Christian who wants to follow Christ, one way or another, has to reckon that they're prepared to do that. Because they see what Malcolm Muggeridge saw. There's something greater about knowing and following Christ. What was going on in Moses' heart? He made a judgment about value. What was valuable to him? And he saw the emptiness of Egypt and he said, as the writer anachronistically puts it, I'll follow Christ. And then he also made another reckoning. It's in the previous verse. A reckoning not just about value, but about permanence. Verse 25. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. You know what they say about um, overindulgence in food? Um, I first heard it from a French friend of ours. I won't try and repeat the French accent, but it remains in my memory. One moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips. Well, that applies to sin. Sin is pleasurable for a moment. But actually, one way or another, it brings a lifetime of regret. And whether you're talking about sinful sex or a sinful obsession with wealth and status or, or sinful anger, they're all the same. They, they're all deeply attractive at the moment. Even anger has a certain sweetness about it in letting it out. It is, they are as addictive as sugar. But sin rots, sin ruins, sin kills. It is a fleeting pleasure. The Olympics trailer put it very well. The pain, the pain of stepping aside from those short-term pleasures, the pain is temporary. But I think the Apostle would have said that the prize is forever. So what do you reckon at the core of your being, in your heart? Do you reckon yet that it is worth following Christ, there will be people here who probably haven't made that decision yet. Perhaps you just need to see more clearly how empty it is to follow this world. Chasing the next relationship or the next 
um, advance in your bank balance or the next rise in status or the next place to live. Perhaps you need to make that judgment right now. You've seen enough. You will make a decision to follow Christ. Many, many people who have made that decision and yet they, they, they wander away from it one, one way or another. Christians need to constantly remake that decision. Perhaps you are addicted to some fleeting pleasure or other. Pornography, of course, stands as a very prominent one in our culture. A typical brief pleasure that degrades us at the deepest level. Increasingly atrophying our ability to build deep relationships. Talk to someone about it. You do not want to invest in such empty things. Perhaps for you as a, as a Christian, you just got sucked in too much to the assumptions of the wider world. You know, remember. It won't be long before you don't need a house to live in. You'll have a six foot wooden box and that'll be enough. It won't be long before the only piece of paper that really counts in your life is the certificate of your death. It won't be long before the only promotion that is of any value to you is the promotion into the presence of God the only demotion to be feared is demotion into outer darkness do you reckon particularly are are you prepared to endure that loss of status for Christ. I think that's a big, big thing that just stops us on a day-to-day talking about our faith. More powerful than many other things is this fear of disgrace, fear of being labelled a God-botherer, a faith-head, a fundamentalist, a fool. One thing that the elders are concerned about is, is we're not sure that we as a church are quite as good and bold as we were about speaking our faith to the world around. We've got a Christianity Explored course starting in October. Will you talk to a friend about whether they'd like to come to it? He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. There is no loss for you, even if they mock you in standing up for Christ. Perhaps for you, even it's a big thing in your life. Perhaps a big decision that you need to make. I don't know what that is. But will you make the decision 
for your eternal benefit or for the meek, weak and miserable benefit that so easily tempts us what is in your heart and then the second question what, what qualities what aspects of character did Moses need see what was going on deep inside him but there was more he needed actually a solid firm mature poised character in order to put those inner convictions into action look at verse 24 for instance by faith when he had grown up he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter there was a clear conscious decision of self-denial if your motto is Oscar Wilde's motto, I can resist everything again, uh, except temptation, then you're ruined. And self-denial is not masochistic torture, you see. It is in enlightened self-interest. This is what Jesus says again and again and again. Whoever wants to be my disciple, he said, for instance, must deny himself and take up his cross daily for... Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me will save it. And what good is it if someone gains the whole world and yet forfeits or loses their very self? In other words, what's the point of living any other way? But make no mistake about it. To live for eternal gain to gain your life is to deny yourself in the short term. He needed a quality of courage as well as self-denial. That's in verse 27. By faith, Moses left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. Actually, there was an earlier time when Moses left Egypt Egypt in fear of the king's anger but with God there are second chances and when he finally came back he had gained the courage and the confidence to face up to Pharaoh and he finally marched him and all the people of Israel away from Egypt defenceless in full view of Pharaoh's armies. And he did it because he knew there was something far greater to fear than the ferocious, murderous anger of the world's most powerful tyrant. As uh, Jesus put it, I tell you, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. I tell you, uh, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. There is someone to be feared. The judge of heaven and earth. But compared to him, we need fear no other. Emily Bronte wrote in a a poem, I think, that was found after her death. No coward soul is mine. No trembler in the world's storm-troubled sphere. I see heaven's glories shine. 
and faith shines equal, arming me from fear. Moses needed courage. And Moses needed perseverance. Verse 27. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. That word persevere may have a sense of keeping our eyes on the goal. Not taking our eyes off it. It's not how you start out in your life of faith that God cares about particularly. It's how you finish. In my, my, in my 30 years of faith, I have seen great ones brought low. I have seen unimpressive and overlooked people slowly through a lifetime of obedience become men and women of the most incredible stature. One of the joys of middle age is seeing people grow through decades of obedience and one of the tragedies of middle age is to see the number of people strewn around you who once seemed to be so impressive and serving God but who now are nowhere. We need perseverance. I'm really, really serious about this. You cannot follow Christ unless God has started to form in you a really solid, firm character. A character that is prepared to deny themselves from day to day in the short term. A character who has courage in this world. A character that keeps doing it day after day after day. We have fine, some fine Christians here in this church and many fine Christians in this country. But one thing I'm really concerned about is that our country actually tends to generate people without those characteristics. People who are wafted around on the waves of, of, of shallow emotions or simple choice, who do not learn some of the fundamentals, uh, disciplines of what it means to live in this world and when they become Christians, they find it incredibly hard to put those things into practice in their lives. And so they just don't mature. They have in their hearts those inner convictions that Moses had. A conviction that this world doesn't have ultimate value. A conviction that sin is just a fleeting pleasure. But fleeting though it may be, I can't stop doing it. And ultimately that is not Christian discipleship. That is not Christian faith. let Let me say to you, are you committed to building into your life those, those deep, solid foundations of character? At a simple day-to-day level, are you committed simply to denying yourself a bit of sleep and actually getting up every day to read your Bible and to pray? If we don't do that, we are lost. Do you have the courage to take risks for Christ, to talk about your faith publicly? To make some difficult decisions? Do you have eyes that are on that goal? Not just every now and again, not just on Sunday mornings when you're listening to a sermon, but day after day, week after week, years are, year after year persevering, fixing our eyes on the goal. 
be different. There's one thing that the Olympics and the Paralympics have taught us. It's that actually lives that are disciplined in that way can achieve the most extraordinary things, can overcome the most extraordinary difficulties. I loved the way they described the Paralympics as meet the superhumans. Because those people are extraordinary. What a deep shame on God's people. If we who have committed ourselves, in theory at least, to lives pursuing a goal, find ourselves as nothing compared to people who only chase the prize of an Olympic gold medal. So I prepared for this, I imagine all of you, on uh, uh, one heavenly Paralympic podium together. And like them, sadly, we're a motley crew, aren't we? But there are angels applauding. And we're waving. And every one of us has a tear in our eye because we summoned up the character to live by the faith of Moses the faith that the writer to the Hebrews calls us to a faith that is deeply convicted about what is of greatest value and then sets out to live a life pursuing it I long for every single one of us here to be people like that. You cannot imagine what even a small group like this could become and could achieve as they live like that. Well, I can do no more than this letter does. Call you to it. You have to put it in practice. Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. What about you?